Greetings, God's beloved. Thanks for tuning in to Messages of Hope, the sermon podcast from Living Hope Lutheran Church in downtown Las Vegas. Our reading today comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, beginning our new preaching series called Good News for the Messed Up. Pastor Matt Metavellis is our preacher. Thanks for listening. God bless you. Jesus went out again beside the sea. The whole crowd gathered around him, and he taught them. As he was walking along, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he got up and followed him. And as he sat at dinner in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were also sitting with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus, said, when Jesus heard this, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners. The Gospel of the Lord. All right, you may be seated. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from his Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And because of today, the Holy Spirit, too. Amen. Amen. So, I don't watch cable too much anymore. I'm on streaming. But, you know, when uh, I used to channel surf, there were a couple movies that maybe, if it was on, I would stop if I happened to run into them. Uh, There's two of them that are kind of chief on that list. Uh, The first is Field of Dreams. And the second is Shawshank Redemption. Uh, How many of you have seen it? Okay, so a lot of people have already seen it. There's a few of you who haven't, so uh, we always uh, always get everybody caught up so we can experience this as a community. I recommend this movie to you. It is the story of Andy Dufresne, who is a banker, who uh, his wife and her lover are murdered. They assumed that he did it, so he is sent to Shawshank Prison. It's there he encounters uh, Red, played by Morgan Freeman, who is really kind of the narrator throughout the movie. And Red's reputation in prison is Red is the person who finds things. Now, I've never been to prison, but I assume that such a person is very valuable. So Red is the person who finds things, and there's a scene in the movie where Andy and Red are getting to know each other and they're playing checkers, and Andy talks about how he'd really like to bring, uh, build a chess set to play chess in prison. And uh, he and Red are talking, and then Red interrupts him and says, Andy, why'd you do it? And Andy stops and look, looks up at Red and smiles and says, Oh, I'm innocent. Well, what are you in for? And Red says, murder, same as you. And uh, during, they have a little bit of dialogue. And Red says, and oh, by the way, I did it. <laughs> and Andy says, really? And Red looks at him and says, iconic line in the movie, I'm the only guilty man in Shawshank. And why that line is so funny is uh, that would be a really interesting movie, a prison full of guilty, uh, innocent people except Morgan Freeman. What he's saying is, I am the only person here 
who will admit that I need to be here. And this is the relationship, I would argue, that so many of us have with our suffering. Right? We always have a story to tell about how our suffering really doesn't belong to us. Or we really don't deserve to be there. Or something happened down the road. Or we, or we got railroaded or we made a mistake. This, we are always telling that story. It might not be that we're in prison, but that we're innocent. But all of the little prisons that we find in our lives, our attitude is always, I don't belong here. I'm innocent. I don't need this. Now, I'll let you guys read that if you can. Uh, okay, good. I, 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 copied it, uh, I copied it big enough. This is, uh, this is very common in uh, recovery circles. This is very common with my friends uh, who are therapists. The, the, they will, the first thing that they will tell you is, I can only help you if you accept that you need help. Uh, often when I'm doing grief counseling, so much of my work is to get people over the anger that they might have, sometimes justified at the healthcare system or at their doctors or at maybe a family member uh, that interfered when their loved one was sick. Or sometimes, this is worst of all, they have anger at themselves. My job is to entangle all that and to get them to finally say, I'm grieving. And I've run uh, support groups where I look at, the, at a person and I go, man, you're like Morgan Freeman. You're the only person grieving in this group, right? So many times, instead of our suffering, we have to tell a story. We have to tell a story about somehow, no, no matter what bad things are happening to us, we have to tell some kind of story about victory, right? We all have to have that picture on our social media, no matter how bad things are, uh, of like sometimes doing the warrior pose uh, up here instead of, I don't think you have room for warrior pose up there. But <laughs> we always have to tell a story about how we overcome. I love watching reality uh, TV shows because always there's a contestant on there and it feels like the Olympics sometimes to see what kind of suffering uh, that they are going to announce that they went through. And then they're going to talk about being on the show as part of their story to overcome it, uh, which is why I talked about Nightbird uh, last year uh, from America's Got Talent where she talked about her cancer. Uh, she said it was terminal and Simon Cowell looked at her and said, well, it's curable, right? And she smiled and looked at him and said, no, the only person with cancer on television, the only dying person with uh, cancer, right? So we always have to tell these victory stories. Uh, I love, I, I've started to really appreciate Synod Assembly because it's been not so much vertical to me anymore. Uh, it's become horizontal where I get a chance to see people, uh, most of them other pastors in Nevada who I only get to see going down to Arizona. And I love... Uh, having a chat with them, uh, because usually, with just one exception this time, every time I get to talk to my colleagues, they go, I'm doing great. We've got this going on at our church, or I'm taking this vacation. Everyone talks about how great they're doing. Do you find this too, Pastor Jason? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's all, we're all trading victory stories. Uh, 
Yeah, until you get to the bar, yeah, which I didn't go to. Uh, <laughs> I had kids. Um, we're all in the business of going around and trading our victory stories because who knows? We might be afraid what people would think of us, right? We don't want to walk around as the wounded pigeon, uh, <laughs> right? Um, but what this leads to, if we're not careful, and I'm not telling you to get rid of your victory stories. They're important. They make for good conversation. And sometimes in this life we do get victories and we should celebrate them. So I'm not trying to be negative. But when we start believing in our own victory stories too much, our denial kind of crosses over from being physical into being spiritual. We tell our victory stories and we expect God to sign off on it. Pastor Paul talked about prosperity theology. That is like victory stories on steroids, right? I just bought a private jet because I believed in God, and you can too, um, right? We, we see this in an extreme form, and we laugh about it. But all of us have these little masks that we put up and I don't know what all of yours are, but I know mine. Sometimes, if I'm not the smartest guy in the room, start to get a little bit uncomfortable, <laughs> right? That's my victory story. That's my mask, right? I took, you know, seven years of classical languages in high school, and then I studied philosophy, and, you know, I read whatever. You, you already know this annoying part of me. Marissa knows it really well, Right? I start to believe in that. I start to believe in my own press. And this becomes a mask that I use so people don't get to know the authentic me. Our stories sometimes become these masks that we wear, that we want God to bless, and that we want God to maybe even just leave us alone. We hear it in the psalm today. It starts to take a toll on us when we don't start telling the story that's behind the victory story. And I used an anime picture for all the young people in here. So, right, This is the honesty breaking through in the Psalms. We heard it today read by Eileen. When I kept silence, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. When we are silent about our suffering, when we are silent about our wounds, when we try to overcome them with our own resources, that takes energy. When we're trying to convince other people or ourselves, and at the worst, when we try to convince God that we are okay, that takes energy that we could be using for our lives. It takes energy we could be using to build connections with people. It takes energy that we could be using to stand in front of a God who loves us and longs to be there with us. God wants such better things for us than private jets. And I heard one comedian describing a private jet, I think it was Molly Shannon, as just, you know, a a coffin in the air. She said it wasn't really that great. But (laughs) 
what happens sometimes is that these uh, individual victory stories can get metastasized and they can become communal victory stories. And I will leave the red, white, and blue one aside. And I will talk about another nationalist victory story that so many people were invested in hearing about. To be an Israelite in the first century was to be a people who were marginalized and under occupation. It was people who were exploited as their own neighbors collaborated with the occupiers. And the way that you felt that in your life was running into a tax collector. I've shared this before. Rome did not have an IRS. They did not want you to fill out your income so that they could take the right percentage without being too burdensome on you. Taxes in Rome worked in this way. Okay, this is what you all need to pay. We don't care whether you can pay it or not. We don't care whether you starve. This is just the price you pay for belonging to the glorious Roman Empire. And if you make noise about it, there's a cross for you. So imagine living under that kind of societal trauma. Right? Jesus's I don't even want to call them adversaries. Jesus's critics. We're living under that kind of trauma. And what they were trying to do was to recapture the holiness that had been marred by foreigners taking over their temple, trying to regain that purity that they had lost as a people, and they were trying to recapture it in their daily lives. Through rituals uh, as depicted here, like very frequent hand washing, which is something that the priests would do in the temple all the time. It was how you had to handle holy things. Now, every time you were getting a late night snack, you had to go and wash your hands. I will leave aside that living like this was probably very expensive and left out a lot of people who maybe could not participate, which is no wonder why when Jesus is saying, hey, we're giving all this out for free, everybody showed up, right? But there were other people who could not participate because maybe they had leprosy. Maybe they were like the poor woman who was bleeding for 20 years and was considered ritually unclean. Maybe it was like the sick or the lame or those with possibly uh, mental problems who were considered possessed by demons, right? All of those people were left out. And what Jesus did by this simple act appointing to a tax collector and not, and I, I think the church should take note here, and not saying, hey, look at this dirty, dumb tax collector who is ruining our society and making God very sad. You know what? You should shape up and follow me. What did he say, right? Follow me. That's it. Follow me. Have some new life. Get a new perspective. Change the way that you are existing with your neighbors. Open your house up. Open your table up. I'm going to sit there with you. Right? And these people sometimes are 
so invested in their victory story. They are so invested in their mask that's saying, hey, we haven't been conquered. We're going to get this back one hand wash at a time. They are so invested in this that they can't see what Jesus is doing. That one meal with the tax collector started that revolution that overthrew the empire. That's how it comes about. You cannot defeat force with force. You can only defeat it with community and love. And that's what we are called to do as a church. But my, my rant over, I want to talk about what this means in your individual lives. When we wear a mask, whether it's a mask that's been given to you by society to participate in, or one that you are wearing to participate in society. When you wear a mask, you might think that you are keeping Jesus out, but actually, you are just keeping yourself in. This is the way grace works, folks. You cannot keep Jesus away from you. You can only keep (laughs) yourself away from Jesus. And guess what? He is very patient. You ever see the cartoons where the the old school cartoons where the Bugs Bunny will like run through a wall and leave a shape? That is what Jesus is doing in our lives, right? When he says those who are who who have no those who are well don't have any need of a doctor, he literally says, but those who are doing badly do right it's uh, kind of it doesn't mean quite sick he he it's a broader expression uh, literally we might say uh, those who are healthy don't need a doctor but those who are in a bad way and Jesus is saying it's not the people who are wearing the mask of purity of holiness that I'm interested in I'm interested in the person, sometimes the same one who is in a bad way under the mask. I'm interested in the person who is addicted, whose hand is still on that bottle, whether it's booze or pills. I'm interested in the person who is depressed. And I'm especially interested in the person who is functionally depressed, who is able to keep a mask and participate in society and even be successful, but yet have this black void or this dark void in the, in their, in the pit of their souls who are just wasting away and not telling anybody about it. I am interested in the people who are grieving. I am interested in the people who have their humanity taken away from them by unjust regimes and other people's masks that need to make other people less of a person. I am interested in those people who are walking around feeling like failures. I am interested in those people who have doors slammed in their face. I am interested in those people roasting in 110 degree heat on D Street under the bridge. I am interested in people who have broken relationships that are just trying to carry on like life is okay and praying for that time where there'll be some understanding and some community again. Wherever that mask is up, Jesus looks at it as a brick wall and he says, I'm going to mount on this cross and I'm going to blast through it and I'm going to run there as quick as I can. Real picture of Jesus running the New York City Marathon. Right? And this is who Jesus is. Right? I think sometimes at church we do a disservice. I love our sanctuary, by the way. I love that it's simple and yet it's elegant and yet it's beautiful. But this is what we're always teaching you. 
that God is up here, and uh, Pastor Jason and I, or whoever might be guests here, right, we wear fancy special robes, and uh, we say, okay, this is, this is God. But what's most important is what happens, that God leaves here and comes right up here for you to come and touch and taste, right? This is is who God is. God is the one who runs to us. And this is what it means to have God as Trinity. That God runs to us as a Father to create things for us to enjoy, to participate in, right? All of those things that our neighbors are doing because it thinks it brings them closer to God, that's fine, right? God gave us mountains and hiking trails and beaches, all these things for us to enjoy, but sometimes that's not good enough for us, and sometimes we make mistakes, and by the way, sometimes we wreck that stuff. So God has to send us a Savior in the name of Jesus, but sometimes that's not good enough because we go, oh, how can a person, right? We start to doubt it. We think that's not good. So then God goes a third time, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to come at you like a ninja. I'm going to come at you through your relationships with other people. I'm going to come at you through words that you might hear. I might even come at you through music. I might come at you through a good movie like Shawshank Redemption. Right? Sometimes God does that. And when we say God is Trinity, what we are confessing is that God is always coming to us in different ways, in different forms, and that when God comes to us, God is fully there. There's not like a goop of God up in heaven and one part is Father, one part's the Son, one part's the Spirit, that when God comes to us, God is fully there. It's a mystery. We can't understand it. Um, Smart people write a lot about it, but that's all that we're saying is that we have a God that keeps coming and a God who is fully there. And we don't know how it happens, but we are just so glad that it happens. We are so glad that we have Jesus running towards us. One person, speaking of prison, who had Jesus running toward him is this great actor named Danny Trejo. His IMDb beats probably about anyone's in Hollywood. He's one of the most beloved figures in Hollywood. Every time I hear him interviewed, uh, you know, he had, this is probably the real him, uh, but every time he's in a movie, he's a gangster or a boxer or a, or a motorcycle guy, right? And he looks really scary because that was a part of his life too. He can play that effortlessly. He was a criminal from the time he was eight and ended up in San Quentin prison. And I love how he tells the story of what happened. There was a famous riot in San Quentin Prison on Cinco de Mayo. And he says that he got grabbed out of that riot for throwing a rock and hitting a guard. And he says, well, I know I threw a rock. I was aiming for somebody else, not the guard. And he wasn't sure whether he hit the guard or not. But because of that, he ended up put in the hole in solitary confinement possibly facing the death penalty for wounding a guard. And he talks about this space where he was kept away from everyone else as the place where God came to find him. It was funny, the sermon he heard was actually scrawled onto the wall. Someone had wrote, God, S-U-C-K-S somewhere on the wall 
And he looked at that, instead of agreeing, he used it to pray. And he said, look, God, if you're here, I'm going to be okay. But if you're not, I'm screwed. And in solitary, he kept that prayer going and finally said a prayer where he said, look, God, if I'm about to die, let me die with dignity. But if not, I promise I will help every other inmate here. And by the way, he said inmate because he didn't think he was ever getting out of prison. Now he talked about what later happened. And if anybody has a victory story, it's Danny Trejo from solitary confinement in San Quentin to the, to the Oscars. I don't know if he won one yet, but uh, sure deserves to. He reflects on that time. And he says, God killed me in there. And then he gave me a new Danny Trejo and said, what are you going to do with him? This is what it means to come to church. This is good news for the messed up life. Because you take it in here, God will kill it. And then God will hand you a new life. And the only question becomes, what are you going to do with it? Amen.